0: There we go. All right, well, I have an addendum uh, from last week 's sermon' uh, it 's <laughs> been a long time since i 've preached as a regular preacher, and having two weeks in a row is really nice because if something happens, uh, you can just stick it on. Uh, so last week we talked about <laughs> uh, last week we talked about the crook and the lot. if you don 't know what that is i, I can 't explain it to you right now, but it has to do with our suffering and how we Endure that suffering in this world. And somebody came to me afterwards and said, "Um, I I agree with all that you're saying. I agree that God crooks our lots and introduces suffering into our lives for all these reasons. But there is a friend of our family whose 11-year-old son just died in an accident. And I can't, I, I don't know how to reconcile all of this. And what, what would I say to those people? And, um, and so I want to just take a moment and say what I would say to those people. One of the things I said last week was that we have to figure out our response to suffering and the philosophical issues before the suffering we encounter the suffering. Because in the middle of it, Affliction is so disorienting, so difficult, it's not the time to deal with philosophical questions. So, if, if I walked into that family's house and they said to me, why? Why did God do this? My answer, even though I spent 40 minutes talking about it last week and I've read books and books and books, and I, would ha- I frankly would have hours to speak to you on this, my answer would be, I don't know. I just don't know. It, it's not the time. It's not the time to, to work out the philosophical issues. It's not time to work out the biblical theological issues. It's just the time to be with them. Now, I have a couple of students who are Messianic Jews, and they have a tradition called sitting Shiva, if you've ever heard of this, where they, as Jews, they will, when somebody is suffering in their congregation, they'll simply go sit with them. No no words, just Presence. They just be there with them. And I think that's what we need in the middle of suffering, not philosophical explanations. There will come a time for that, but not in that moment. So um, I felt that needed to be said, and now we'll move on to the eighth commandment. Okay. So our text today comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. Four short words in the English, two words in the Hebrew. It goes like this, you shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now, people hungry for truth, hungry for the fullness of your spirit, whether we acknowledge it or not, and so we pray that you would fill us the psalmist said, open wide at my mouth so that you may fill it. This is what we long for. Father, open our mouths wide so that you may come and fill us with spiritual food. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Okay, uh, the catechism question, we just heard it recited beautifully by these children, but we'll look at just the eighth commandment piece that we're going to be considering this week together. It's 11 Question 11C, and it says, what does God require in the Eighth Commandment? And together with great verve and life, we will respond, eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else, nor withhold any good from someone we might benefit. Okay, I remember when I was about four or five years old, and my father took me to a mechanic, to get his car fixed and once the mechanic had diagnosed the issue, he came back into his office where we were sitting and he and my father began talking about things in a language that I had no idea, you know, like distributor caps and transmissions and fluids and all this sort of thing. And it wouldn't have mattered if I could understand anyway, because something captured my attention. Underneath the desk, right in front of me, sort of tucked away where the tall people couldn't see it, was a metal filing cabinet. And they were jabbering on and jabbering on, saying things that couldn't have interested me more. And even if they were interesting, it wouldn't have mattered, for the most glorious and beautiful and resplendent thing had caught my attention. And it was right there on the side of the filing cabinet. It was... It was the mechanic's business card. I know, I know, but but the, this is no ordinary business card. You guys, it was magnetic, and oh, I saved the best for last. It was in the shape of a car, <laughs> and my goodness, I saw it, and I wanted it. It was like it was like stinking Homer's Odyssey, where the sirens start calling out, and and, and I. <laughs> And I went mad, and I didn't have a crew who could lash me to the mast and keep me there. I I saw it now, and I wanted it. And and if you had seen it, you would have gone mad too. But (laughs) I knew, I knew, that as much as I wanted it, I had a firm conviction, as little children often do, as my children do often, is that if I asked my dad for it, the answer was, no, you can't have that. And so my desire burning inside me, I reached out and I took my prize and I hid it under my shirt and we left. Now, my dad was no fool. He could see that under my shirt, once we got back in the car, I was hiding something. And he asked me about it. And I confessed through tears. And so he marched me right back in And I had to confess to the man whose hands were all black with grease. That's all I remember. I don't remember actually looking up into his face. I can only remember looking down because I was so embarrassed by this. And I gave the magnet back. Now, looking back as an adult, here's what I know and here's what all of us know, is that that magnet was not of any value whatsoever. Right? The whole point of that like let's say I had a job when I was four and I had some money of my own, some (laughs) pocket cash. The magnet still wasn't for sale, why? Because it's free. He he has it so that he can give it to his customers of which my dad was one, and in fact, this guy probably wanted us to take it so that the next time the car broke down there, his number would be right on our fridge. But still, even so, The whole point is, none of that matters. I couldn't parse through all those nuances as a child. All I knew was that I wanted something, and I was convinced that I could not have it through legitimate means, so I took it through illegitimate means. And in that moment, though I didn't know such things at the time, I became a lawbreaker. I became a thief. I had broken the eighth commandment. And further, what I did not know at that point, is that God takes such breaking of his commandments very, very seriously. Consider Achan. You remember old Achan, right? I, I, he, uh, when when the, the people of God are going into the promised land, one of the things that they have to do is they have to clear out the other people who already live there and who are judged by God. And so... They go in and one of the conditions on them possessing the land, God tells them in no uncertain terms is that when you go in there, you cannot keep anything for yourself. All of it is devoted to destruction, every single bit. And so uh, and so, this is going pretty well for some time. Uh, they're having a lot of success and they're taking over all these cities. And then all of a sudden, they get to a city called Ai. Spelled just like it sounds, A-I. They get to A-I. And, and the spies go up and they see the, the town. And they're like, this is going to be easy. This is going to be so simple. Because there's only a few people there. They look weak in constitution. And Joshua, or excuse me, um, Caleb comes back and says to Joshua, look. there's No need to send the whole army up there. Just a couple thousand and we'll mop it up. It'll be easy. And so the couple thousand go up there. And they find that they, when they begin to attack, they don't send their enemies fleeing. Their enemies, who should have been very easy to defeat, ends up sending them to flight. And so Joshua is dismayed. And he goes in before the ark of God, you know, God's physical presence on earth. He falls on his face and he says, why, God, why is this happening? This should have been easy. Why are you allowing this? And I love I love what God says. It's, it's, he says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? It gets, it gets sassy, you know? It's like, get up. Don't, I'm going to tell you why. And you want to know why? Because somebody took what did not belong to them. Somebody took in, in AI, or actually previous to this, something that belonged to me. And God tells him who it is. And so, the next day, Joshua brings the whole congregation together, and he has them rotate before him according to tribe. And by lot, he chooses the tribe of Judah. And Achan's like, hmm. Then, he has the tribe of Judah rotate before him according to family, and he chooses the family of Achan. And Achan's starting to sweat. And then he has each family, each member of the family pass before him, and by lot, he chooses Achan and he says to Achan, what did you do? Your brothers, their blood is on the ground because of something you did. What did you do? And Achan falls to the ground and he confesses and he says, I took something. I stole it from the Lord. I took something that was devoted to God. And Joshua puts his hand on Aiken's head and he says, you with the sad eyes, don't be discouraged. Oh, I realize it's hard to take courage. No, that's Cindy Lauper. Um, <laughs> Aiken, go home. <laughs> You're forgiven. Go, go live out your days with your family. Right? Oh no, no, that's not what happened. Okay, so actually what happened was that they took Achan outside of the congregation, they stoned him to death, left the pile of rocks on top of him, stuffed it with kindling everywhere, and set the thing on fire. Now I realize I, I realized as I was putting this together, every time I am assigned a commandment, I have a story about how God killed somebody for not obeying the commandment. <laughs> I don't know what to do. They're there, okay? So um, So this is what happened to Achan and this thief then would no longer steal. He knew the eighth commandment and he broke it on purpose and the consequence was swift and it was severe. So God takes this command seriously. But let's be honest with each other. I don't think I have to convince you that God takes this command seriously. In fact, I think we actually all, for the most part, agree that stealing is wrong. This is not actually like the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, in which the values of the commandment are really opposed to the values of our culture. And so we have to spend time figuring that out. And when in reality, the values of the eighth commandment are right in line with our culture. There's nobody who's saying stealing is a good thing. We have laws against it that that reflect the values of the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. And so I'm guessing that we all agree about this. I'm guessing most of us don't steal stuff from each other. Now, there may be a thief among us, uh, and I'll talk to you later. But but for the most part, we all as a culture believe this to be true. And... uh, I mean, I was, for, personally, I was cured of this after that embarrassing episode as a child. I had friends all in middle school who were really into stealing things from Best Buy and everything. I never really acknowledged, or never um, found a place in me after that. Um, and I don't say that to boast, only to say, uh, as a confession, how confusing this commandment is. It doesn't seem to have any teeth to it. That's what I wrestled with all week. It doesn't feel, I don't feel the bite of this. Because we both, and we most of us, agree with this and abide by it. Unless we don't. And that's what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. We'll look at this commandment under three headings. Number one, what does the commandment forbid? Number two, what duties does the commandment require? And number three, how can we obey this commandment from the heart? Number one, what does the commandment forbid? What duties does it require, and how can we obey it from the heart? So first of all, what does the commandment forbid? In a phrase, the commandment forbids, taking what I want through illegitimate means. The commandment forbids taking what I want through illegitimate means. The commandment in the rest of Scripture really focuses on... Things, stealing things, physical objects from each other. In fact, it goes on in, Levi- um, excuse me, in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy to talk about how we can't steal things from each other, nor can we steal people from each other. Um, quick application, if you've kidnapped somebody, not okay, and you need to give them back. Okay, so let it not be said that I didn't have any practical application here. Um, uh, so, so let's start with physical things. Um, This commandment presupposes that we all have, to some degree, our own property. It may be just a coat and a cardboard box to lay on, or it may be billions of dollars in net worth, but we all have something, things that belong to us. A thing cannot be stolen unless it belongs to somebody else. So to apply our definition of stealing to physical things, it would mean this, to take physical things that we want by illegitimate means. Okay, we're all smart people. We're following this. This makes sense. Um, so, for example, I go to Target, and I see a shirt, and it is adorable. And, and, and I want it, but I don't have enough money for it. And, sorry, I, I hear that from my wife sometimes. That that's, I guess it's stuck in there somewhere. Um, and I want it, but I don't have the money for it. So I take it, put it in my shirt or whatever by illegitimate means. That would be taking a physical object, illegitimate means. There's a legitimate way to get that, by the way, which is to take it off the rack, go to the counter and pay money for it. That's the legitimate way. But illegitimately, um, we take it uh, without paying for it. So, we've already seen that God takes this kind of thing very seriously, so I'm not going to press the point on that. Now, that's the obvious form of stealing. Let's explore the less obvious form of stealing, namely stealing non physical objects or things from each other. So taking non physical things that we want by illegitimate means. For example, uh, I want to watch a TV show or a movie. And I have to pay for it, but I don't want to pay for it, and so I download it um, without any without having to pay for it. Uh, there's plenty of ways to do that. Um, and we know this is illegitimate. It's a breaking of the commandment, of course. Um, but but the objection then comes back and says, yeah, but it doesn't hurt them. It doesn't hurt those multi-billion dollar Movie corporations, right? Faceless corporations, it doesn't hurt them. To which I would respond whether it hurts them or not, I don't know. I'm not, I don't have a mind capable of analyzing complex economic formulae, but I do know that the Eighth Commandment does not have that caveat. It doesn't say do not steal unless it's a big corporation and they're rich anyway and it's not it doesn't have that. So all I know is all I know is that is a violation of the commandment. Maybe that stealing won't make much of a difference in their bottom line, but what difference will it make in my own heart to trample the commandment of God so easily? And it's not too hard to apply this to anything with copyrights. Okay. So we're just putting the toes in the water. Let's, let's go a little further, a little further. Um, what about cheating? Cheating would be a violation of the eighth commandment. Now I'm a high school teacher. Uh, and so I deal with this a lot. And some of you will say, don't you teach at a Christian school? I know. I know. Isn't it hard to believe that teenagers don't follow the commandments as perfectly as we adults do? Um, it, I mean cheating occurs in my classes and like I I get up and every time we have a test I give them this little speech I'm like guys listen listen I know that you're not going to cheat but that depraved worm next to you will so be careful and and you need to know this if if, if college I know that the that the stakes are high like if college admission standards were today uh, if when I was going to college, you know, 20 years ago, if, if those standards were the same as they are today, like, I was not going to college, I promise you that much right now. I would, I mean, I was an average student, and I mean, I would be destitute out on the street dealing drugs or something, because I would not get in with, with the kind of standards that they have today. And so I say, guys, listen, I know the standards are high, I know, but, but taking what is not yours, in this case, the answers of your neighbor, through illegitimate means, cheating, is not the way to get what you want. I know that it seems to be that like, there's a lot riding on this test, and if you do poorly on this test, then you're not going to get into the college of your dreams. To which I say, so what? Let it be. If you didn't study for the test... Take the bad grade, because you have no idea what trampling on the commandment of God does to you and to your heart. And, you know, most of them don't believe me. Um, They they believe that stealing is acceptable just as long as it has good long-term consequences. The ends justify the means, and then I tell them that's what Hitler said, and then they stop talking. Okay. (laughs) So, it's a lie. Don't believe it. Okay, so the truth is, uh, one little speech from their teacher is not going to do anything for them when they've grown up in a culture of pressure and um, performance and all this sort of thing. But I say it anyway. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Okay, let's further apply this. Let's further try to figure out what does this commandment forbid? The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 13, applies this commandment. He says this, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, so there's this, there's this environment that he sets up in which we owe certain people certain things. And to not pay what we owe is a form of theft. It's a form of robbing those people. And so let's look at these each in turn briefly to see what he's talking about. First of all, taxes and revenue. He, th- these are actually, in Paul's world, two words for different taxes. Uh, so we're going to lump them together in the, under the heading of taxes. So we're in tax season. You know this. Um, and the Bible clearly teaches that we are to pay our taxes to the governing authorities. But let's say I want to keep some of my money. There is a legitimate way to do that, and there is an illegitimate way to do that. The illegitimate way would be to fudge the numbers on my returns, which is a nice way of saying stealing, and someone will object and say, Yes, yes, but some of my taxes are unjust and overreaching. To which I would answer, I have good news for you. You live in a representative democracy. And so the legitimate way to keep more of your money is when the voting cycle comes back up, you vote someone else into office. And if your candidate doesn't win, then we go back to Romans 13 and see that God has ordained that the governing authorities be over us, including the very people who are over us. And we say, okay, apparently it is God's will that I pay this amount of taxes. And but perhaps you'll further object. And you'll say, but it's not right that I pay such taxes and therefore I won't. To which I would respond, well, you're choosing to live in this country. That's a choice. There are exactly 194 other countries in which you could, to, to which you could emigrate and live under their tax structures. But by choosing to remain in this nation, in this state, you have chosen to pay this nation's and this state's bills, so I, I don 't know what to tell you, there's not much wiggle room here. We must pay our taxes. Jesus Jesus paid his taxes. You remember this, right? He tells Peter to go out and catch a fish, and in the fish, the mouth of the fish is a coin that pays both Jesus 's and Peter 's temple tax. If anyone should have been exempted from a temple tax, it was the one who stood in the temple and said, "I am the temple." Right, and I'm trying to convince my wife that you know tax season means more fishing um, and to, um, to be like Jesus. Uh, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm working on it. All right. Um, so taxes. Um, that's the first thing that we we must not violate the Eighth Commandment in terms of our taxes. Secondly, respect. He says, pay respect to whom respect is owed. And to withhold respect is to rob those who are owed of our respect. Yeah, you understand. Okay, that sentence broke down. All right, to whom do we owe respect? I don't have time to speak on everyone to whom we owe respect. In um, this, in the context of Romans chapter 13, it's the governing authorities. Um, but I want to talk about one particular category of those to whom we owe respect. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that wives are to respect their husbands. It's the same word. Wives are to respect their husbands. Wives fear not. Husbands come next. Um, Wives respect your husbands. And to disrespect your husband is to steal from them what is due to them. Now, some dear woman in a hard marriage will object. Lots of objections from you people today. Some, some woman will object who's in a hard marriage. Yeah, but you don't know my husband. He's not a respectable man. And so to pay him respect, in this case, would be a lie. To which I would respond, you're right. I don't know your husband. But let's look under the surface of this objection. I'm guessing that what's lurking below that dissatisfaction... Um, that hurt in your marriage is like a real, like gut level desire for a good man. A man who cherishes you and loves you, walks in the ways of the Lord, cares for the children, raises them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and embraces you and your children as a gift. That's the kind of man you could respect. And Frankly, I want that for you too. I really do. But to this objector, I would say, you don't have that. Right now, currently, you do not have that man. And I don't see anywhere in this commandment, or anywhere in this command, in in Paul's letters or in the commandment itself, that, that there's this caveat that says we only pay respect to whom respect is owed when they are acting or being respectable. Now, by some strange providence, God has ordained that your husband, just by virtue of being your husband, is owed respect, whether he is respectable or not. And who knows whether the respect that you pay him is not the thing that will turn him into a better man. Now, if you want a good man, there is a legitimate way to get one and an illegitimate way to get one. Remember, we're we're under the eighth commandment here, um, at least as far as respect is, is concerned. The illegitimate way would be to demand a respectable man and withhold your respect until he becomes respectable. And in that case, your husband is walking around impoverished, and I don't know of a man, um, that's not true. I, it, it, would, it would be a significant feat of God to, for a man to become a respectable man under that kind of poverty. But there's a legitimate way. That's possible, but not probable. But there's a legitimate way to get a better man, and that is to pay respect to whom respect is owed. Respect him even when he is unrespectable even if only because that's how Jesus loved you. Go, go read John's first letter. He says in it that Jesus, by, by Jesus' love for us, we have become lovely. It's not the other way around. It may be that your husband becomes a respectable man, because you respect him. OK. <clears throat> so that's respect. Pay respect to whom respect is owed. Thirdly, honor. Honor. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says that husbands owe honor to their wives. And so we're under the, we're at least in non-physical things, under the eighth commandment again, we owe honor to our wives. And husbands, we're not to honor our wives in the same way that I just said with wives. We're not to honor our wives because they necessarily behave in honorable ways. We are to honor our wives because from before the foundation of the world, God has ordained that our wives are worthy of honor, and they are of more value than almost anything that will be presented to our senses in this world. And if you wait to honor your wife until she behaves honorably, I'm afraid that that might never happen for you. A wife, come on, <laughs> a wife knows whether her husband honors her, whether he values her and treasures her. And if she is convinced that he does not, again, it would take a significant act of God, which is not out of the question, but very rare, in, at least in my experience, to make that woman not retreat in coldness and distance and probably bitterness from her husband. And so, husband, how do you know that that the woman that you want, that the wife that you want, won't come through your honor to, to pay her what she is due? Now, as I said, there's... If you want a more honorable wife, there's an le- illegitimate way to get it. There's a legitimate way to get it. The illegitimate way is to wait until she is worthy of honor and then honor her. But husbands, we must, we must honor our wives. There's, there's no caveat in the command that says, wait. No, we must honor our wives. Men, if I asked people who are close to you about, about how you think of your wife, W- would they be able to tell me that you you value her, you treasure her? I'm not saying we never say that never, never deal with any of the difficulties and, and confess sins and all this sort of thing, but, but as a general rule, do, do, you, do your friends know this woman means the world to me? Something to think about. Okay. Now, I've spent far too much time on what this commandment forbids, so I've got to hasten to what the commandment requires. So secondly, what duties does the commandment require? I've already said it a few times, but what the commandment requires is that we possess what we want through legitimate means. And what are the legitimate means? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul again here in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 28. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the antidote, according to Paul, to stealing is to do honest work with your hands. And more to the point, doing honest work, it means that you need a job. If you're not going to steal, now, somebody will say, "Aren't aren't you being insensitive to people who are unemployed?" No, <laughs> like I, if if anybody knows the desire and need for a job, it's the unemployed. They, you understand this, like, uh, but we 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 must have jobs. We we must work. Okay, so there's at least two practical outworkings of this that I can see. First of all, God is ordained uh, in His. Pleasure that we exist in a world full of physical things that we will, in some measure, possess. Things are not bad. Things are good insofar as we offer them up to God. Now, the only legitimate way to possess those things is to labor and to do honest work, which has the following corollary application that if if God has given me work to do in this world so that I may possess things, that's not the only reason, but that's one reason, so that I may possess things, it it really acts as a governor to my desires and the things that I can possess, right? So uh, I told you before I teach high schoolers history and that means that by virtue of the work, the honest work that God has given me to do with my hands, um, I will not be driving a Bentley to teach my students history. I, I don't know that I'd want to anyway, I'd be so nervous. I, um, <laughs> so, um, so I'm not gonna be driving a Bentley. So it, it's like th- the work of my hands then, uh, the, the work that God has entrusted to me tells me what things are accessible to me and what things are not, right? So th- th- that's one outworking of that, I can put a boundary on our desires. Now, second outworking of doing honest work, a point of not stealing and doing honest work is simply not to stop at possessing what you want. Paul goes further than possession of things. He says, do honest work so that you may have something to share with those who are in need. And what he's saying here is a violator of the eighth commandment only concerns himself with what he can take. But a man and a woman remade in the image of Christ who longs to walk in the ways of God is not concerned with what he can take, is concerned with what he or she can give, who can pour out. And so how do we become those kinds of people? And that brings us to our third point. How can we obey this from the heart? So in his letters, if you've ever read the letters of Paul, you know, he... He, in general, he does not apply truth vaguely. He doesn't apply truths in general. He applies them to specific churches, and in some cases, to specific people in the church. Now, this little verse right here that says, let the thief no longer steal. If you ever read any commentaries on this, most of the commentators agree that Paul is speaking to a specific person in that congregation. He doesn't say, let thieves no longer steal. He says, let the thief no longer steal, and so <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to imagine myself in that position, hearing this letter from Paul read in the congregation, and that guy is me. He's, he's directly addressing me. and he, if, Let's say I put myself in that position, let the thief no longer steal, and I'm cut to the heart by Paul's command, and my next question to Paul is, okay, Paul, how? how do I do this? And he gives us an answer. It's just above this, starting in verse 17. He says, now, now this, I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. You must not walk around breaking commandments because you, you, you are no longer of the darkness, You no longer have the futility of mind that they have. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. You no longer have a hard heart. You no longer have a heart of stone. You have a heart of flesh by the new covenant, the outpouring of Christ's blood. You have this within you and this heart beats to walk in the ways of the Lord. So they have become callous, those who still have the heart of stone. They are callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity But, but... Now, I can't tell, we, we can't even go in. This is a glorious mountain that I would love to climb with you. We can't go into all of it. All this to say, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, remember, we're asking the question, how? How do we no longer steal? In the death and resurrection of Jesus, his people have been created after the likeness of Christ himself. Now, how do we walk in this newness of life? First, we have to see. I mean, he, he says that um, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. We have to see that those who break this commandment not to steal, and I would be surprised if any of us could raise our hand and say, yeah, that's not me. All of us have broken the law, and James tells us that if we've broken the law at one point, we've broken all of them. So we have to understand first that the fate of Achan is, awaits each commandment breaker. A swift and violent judgment is due to the breakers of this commandment. But on the cross, something extraordinary occurred. Jesus, you will remember, was crucified between two thieves. And here we see two men who are trying to gain life. One by illegitimate means and one by legitimate means. The one yells at Christ and demands his life. He says, aren't you the Christ? Get off of the cross and get me off too. And as far as we know, Jesus answered him, Nothing. But then on the other side, the thief humbled himself and he said, Oh Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says to him the words that no thief deserves to hear, but which every thief longs to hear. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And so, fellow lawbreakers, don't you know? Don't you know that your life is hidden with Christ and Jesus? Don't you know that all your forgiveness resides in him and in his poured out blood and his finished work and in his resurrection? And he does not want you to pay him back for what you have robbed him of. He says you are forgiven if only you believe. You must believe. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Now, this table that we're coming to now, this is the table where thieves are made into partakers of eternity. All of us have violated the commandment of God, as we know, and yet for those of us who have confessed, who have repented, Christ has set this table for us. This is not a table of demand. We don't come here demanding life from him. We humble ourselves, and we approach in penitence, because to approach this table means that we are violators of the most serious kind. And when we come to this table, christ we realize Christ has set this table for us and has intended that you will find the power that you need to do the honest work that he has given you, to give yourself away when you drink this cup and this bread. And when you take these elements, you are ingesting the honest work of Christ. When you take up these elements, you are... You swallow them, and you are metabolizing the self-giving of Jesus. Therefore, in a very real way, when you do this, by faith, I mean, these things aren't magical, but by faith these things occur. You take his work and his generosity into yourself. He feeds you so that you may walk in his ways. So this is a table for his children. For the children of the Father, for brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, who have believed in his atoning death and resurrection for the salvation of their sins. If that's not you, this is the converting table. You should come. You you should confess, find somebody, confess to them that you believe in Jesus. That he has forgiven your sins, even yours, and come to the table. Let's pray. Father, who are we that you should become so generous with us? What What is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, somehow, even those of us who have flagrantly violated all that you consider good, holy, righteous, reflections of your character and your work, you have poured all of that condemnation, the just wrath of a holy God, onto our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we flee to him We hide in his name, and we rejoice that you have given us the name's sons and daughters. We eagerly await and anticipate the day when you will come, when Jesus will come, and he will usher us into his everlasting kingdom, never to break your law again. But until that day, Father, strengthen us through the means that you have given us. Oh, how we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may come.